0: Here's Jerusalem right here. Um, John the Baptist had been living in the wilderness since he was young. He was a prophet of God, came to prepare the way of Christ, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was baptizing people here, and in fact, Jesus Christ came to him, and John said, I shouldn't baptize you. And Jesus said, no, baptize me. He baptizes Jesus right here in the Jordan River. And this is just shortly after that, that um, as you guys have heard here, um, Jesus and some of his disciples are baptizing people in Judea, which would be maybe the Jordan River area in Judea. And it says that John the Baptist and his guys are up here in um, Anon, Salim. This is archeologically where that is said to have been. So they're kind of north. And it says that they had plenty of water there and people were coming to them to get baptized. So. Uh here's, here's Anon near Salim. Pretty nice. Looks pretty good. Uh, I don't know where the water is. It's somewhere over there. It says it was plentiful. Number one in your notes, serving God in the good times and the difficult times. Right now we're talking about the good times because it says multitudes of people are coming out to John. And so John is well-liked by the public um, not so much by the religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, and they, they felt threatened by him, and he's exposing the hypocrisy and so forth. But man, he's, he's moved up out of the wilderness to this nice area. Lots of people are coming to be baptized. Uh, lots of people receiving the truth that John was speaking. A lot of hearts being changed and people being honest about their lives and their sins and wanting to be right with God. So life is good. It is fun serving God when everything is working and going well. And it made me think, the best year of my life was 2006. It was a be- I had some, some frustration, some very high stress levels, and some things not panning out. And prior to that, even a year before that, and then 2006, I got married. I, I moved to, out of Minneapolis. I moved to Mount Horeb. I had a new location. I had a, I'd always lived with roommates and guys, and, and then I had a house. I bought a house, a new starter house with Cassie, a new house, new job. I was teaching school at a private school. There I was teaching music, and, um, and I hated it. And I came here, and I became a youth pastor, and I loved it. I was super excited to tell people about Jesus, youth and the character of God. And so that year, it felt like I was walking on a cloud every day. Just walking on a cloud. One stoplight in in, in Mount Horeb instead of a hundred to get to work. It was awesome, and just serving God felt so good. It was so fun telling people about Jesus and helping students grow in their faith. That was a good year. Do you have a best year in your life? A best time? You remember those good moments? I remember. Do you remember high school? The last day of high school, and you thought. My life is gonna be easy now. This is so great. I'm done with the hard part of life. Or you get done with college, that last exam, if you went to college. Thought, wow, I am walking on a cloud now, never have to do school, never have to learn again. <laughs> or maybe you got married, or maybe maybe you got out of jail. And that was the best day. I'm serious. Maybe you can see the look of I'm a free man. Just awesome. Those days, those years. And it is serving God in the good times. And the disciples, man, they got to serve Jesus with the good times when he's healing all the sick and everybody's coming. And all of a sudden, I was a nobody, but now that I'm a disciple of Jesus and everybody knows that I'm Peter or I'm Andrew, they thought, wow, this is cool. I'm being used in a powerful way here. Ministry's really taken off. That's awesome. Did you thank God for the good times? Thank you, God. Sometimes we don't thank God for some of the blessings that we've had, the good times, the memories, the opportunities, the ways he's been able to use us. Thank you, Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, he is good. His faithful love endures forever. His faithful love endures in the good times and in the difficult times. His faithful love endures forever. Let's keep reading John 3, verse 25 through 26. Then there arose a dispute, doggone it, (laughs) dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. So they, they learned that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing too. Is the second part of this. But the first part, they're having, some of John's disciples are having a dispute with some Jews about purification. We're not told exactly what about, what is the exact nature of this dispute, um, if it's even related or unrelated to verse 26. It doesn't tell us with certainty. But there's a dispute that happens. And I think, sometimes I'm sitting in my house and I think, Why? My kids have to fight. Why do they have to antagonize each other and argue and tell on each other, Dad, so-and-so. Then I got to do something, right? So I got to have justice or I could just over... I don't know. Why? Why? And I think, you know, adults do the same thing. We're in disputes all the time. And I think about myself. I do it. I did it this week. I was, I was preparing the sermon, and I was like, and then I recognized it. I'm like, doggone it. Why did I go have that argument? Why did I go down that road disputing? Here's a good book. Zip it. <laughs> My wife got this book. Not for me. She she got it from somebody. I didn't give it to her. (laughs) Keep it shut. The keep it shut 40-day challenge. Karen, amen. Amen? Sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is put duct tape right there. But there's times, sometimes disputes are unavoidable. Sometimes they're thrust upon us. Sometimes we're obligated to confront an injustice, to stand up for truth that is being undermined. And there's scriptural support for being courageous and standing up for truth. Standing up for the oppressed. God, give us discernment as to when to become involved and when not to. When to speak and when to keep our mouths shut, Lord. <clears throat> Titus 3.9, Paul, he tells Titus, he says, Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable. Titus is a protégé of the Apostle Paul, and Paul is saying, hey, in running your church, so believers, unbelievers, whatever, avoid foolish disputes. They're distracting. They suck your energy, and they get your eyes off of the goal and the mission. I already prefaced this, that there's some disputes we, we need to have. But we need God's discernment, and there's a lot of them, including what Paul's telling Titus here, avoid foolish disputes. Here's another one. Now he's telling Timothy. Again, I say, don't get involved in foolish, ignorant arguments that only start fights. That's what Paul tells Timothy. Here's what Paul tells the Galatians, right? For the whole law can be summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Show them a lot of grace. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. That can happen in a church, and we want to always guard against that. We want to work harder at loving than disputing. If we dispute, we do so in love. But we work harder at loving. It's good for us, and even in our neighborhoods. We find a neighbor, and we start loving in tangible, practical ways, consistent ways, loving our neighbor as ourself, loving those (laughs) around us. Jesus said Matthew 24:12 sin will be rampant everywhere speaking of the end times and the love of many will grow cold. That is a prophecy that Jesus gave. He says, "In the end times, this is what will happen, not might be, what have this will be what happens is the love of many will grow cold. Love toward God, love toward one another. Disputes will divide the church." A lot of people will take their eyes off of Jesus and it'll be on circumstantial and external. And there'll be a lack of grace for people. Lord, let that not happen on our watch. May we love one another so much. And I was even sensing and feeling that as we worshiped and um, some of those songs. Lord, keep my eyes fixed on you. Mm Mm-hmm. Keep me abiding. Keep me abiding. Church, let's abide in the love of God. God, flush out our system of any resentment or bitterness or offense. Flush it out, Lord God. Give us your love, Lord. Pour in your supernatural love, Lord, and let us experience your love, Lord, and let it flow out to these people around us, our brothers and sisters and the unbelievers in the world. There's too much good to be done. We do not have time for disputes. Distractions would slow the progress down. We are doing a good work. We're sitting at the feet of Jesus. We do not have time for foolish disputes. Two is uh, we must guard ourselves. We must guard against taking offense. We must guard against taking offense. So um, we're told that John's disciples were disputing Uh, with some Jews about purification. And whether that was a valid dispute that they needed to have or have or not, um, or whether it was related to the fact that then they said that, hey, there's someone, the person that you had uh, testified about, he actually has his disciples, they're baptizing people, if it's related to that or not. I don't know, but it puts their heart in a defensive position. These disciples, their heart is in a defensive position, defending against threats And taking offense at something that is happening outside of them. So, um, threatened by the success of others. There's hearsay about Jesus and his disciples. And they say, and all are going to him. That's an exaggeration. They say the word all are going to him. They're baptizing people as they say that. It says, John, they're coming to John. They're being baptized. And then some of his disciples came back to John and said, hey, all of them are going to him. Which wasn't even quite true. Envy. Why them and not me? Who deserves what? Don't I deserve? Don't, how do they deserve? Creates unhealthy need to analyze and criticize. We had um, one of my children found a rubber fish this big, came from one of those quarter machines, I think, underneath the couch a week or two ago, a week ago. And he found it and he's like, oh, and he started playing with it. And then another child in my family came into the room. This child was having a great day until they came into the room and they saw this rubber 25-cent fish in the hands of another child, one of my children, and and they (laughs) said, Hey, that's mine. That was mine. And he said, I found it. I just found it under here. I found it. And he goes, yeah, but that was, blah, blah. and so then I'm in the middle of it, and he says, that was mine. I'd lost it a long time ago, but now, I said, you were really happy until you saw that it was found, and since it was in the hands of so-and-so, now you're not happy anymore. And, and really, that really ruined the next three or four hours of his day until he was distracted and started thinking about something else. Did I say he? I meant they. <laughs> they, it was right there. Fear, what will happen to my position? So we see the success happening of somebody else has, something going well, something. And, and, and it's terrible. It's not even someone doing good stuff, ministry. Someone help, and their ministry is growing, or people are looking to them for, you know, bring questions or um, finding advice or who knows what. And we're like, well, why not me? Why do they go there? And why? What will happen to my position or my influence or my security or comfort or social or financial status? If they're profiting, what's going to happen to me? And what about, what about people coming or appreciating or honoring or, or wh- what about my skill sets? Are they not important or are they not as important? And now feelings of inferiority. Infior, oh, <laughs> I don't even know if I can say it right right now. Inferiority, Lack of identity. Let's just keep going. I had a friend that visited Haiti. And this was right after the big natural disaster. Was That, a, that was a tsunami, correct? 10 years ago? Earthquake, earthquake. okay. Earthquake, and, um, and they went down for relief. Um, and, and the place, even before the earthquake, it was economic disparity and a mess. Um, but what they observed, and they, this stuck with me, is they said, people, if someone attempted to make something of themselves, to begin to create, like with a little hut, to try to create a business that would provide a service to the community, a valuable service, and they're working hard at establishing rapport and being trustworthy and getting any type of traction. If the village people or other people saw that taking place, then in the middle of the night, they would come as a, a whole bunch of them would gather together, they'd come and they'd burn it down or tear it down and destroy everything that was in that whatever little market or whatever they were selling or whatever service, just destroy it. So no offense was intended, but offense was taken in that scenario. Here's someone, and they saw them as, I guess it's easier to tear someone down than to take responsibility for your own life or to, to... exert energy in a positive sense so they would come, they'd see that as a threat. This person, this family member of ours or this friend of ours is starting to have some success. We need to destroy that. Scripture tells us to overlook offenses. There's a lot of unintended offenses. We can become offended for no reason. (laughs) But if someone does intentionally offend us, Scripture tells us if we are able to, and in the proper, I mean, actually tells us we are to overlook offenses. I should preface that. If, if someone's doing some harmful things and we need some accountability and there needs to be that, of course. But as it is within us, we are to overlook an offense. <clears throat> Instead of, uh, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, we'll get to a couple scriptures on that. But there's a victim mentality in Haiti, and there's a victim mentality in the United States of America, and everywhere in the world, there's a victim mentality that has existed and has always existed. Life isn't fair. Well, that is true. Life is not fair. Often people don't deserve what they have. True, that's true too. What is that to me? What is that to me? And how does focusing on these facts help me? I think of John the Baptist's disciples, and they're looking at that, and like, do they deserve that? Is this fair? I mean, we've been in this ministry for a long time. This is a startup. What, is this fair? That, do they deserve that all the people are going there? Because we've been in this business a long time, and we've been sweating and working hard for a long time. This, is this? It's not quite right. Jesus, after Jesus died and rose from the dead, and just before he ascended back to heaven, he's walking with Peter on the beach, And he's telling Peter, Peter, I want you to feed my sheep. Meaning I want you to be a leader in nurturing people to help them know about the kingdom of God, experience my love. I want you to tell the gospel, make disciples and so forth. And and Peter, your life, you're going to end up giving your life. You're going to lose your life for me, but I want you to follow me. And Peter is hearing this and he's like... It's a, it's a big responsibility, and it's, it's not great news knowing. I mean, Peter knows there's a heaven. He, he knows Jesus rose from the dead, so Peter has, you know, he knows that there's an afterlife. But that's, it's, and, and Peter kind of looks behind and he sees the apostle John walking. And he says, well, What about him? And Jesus says, What is that to you, Peter? You follow me whether I want him to live or not, and so then the rumor goes out, oh, John's never going to die, and that wasn't true. John actually died also, eventually, on the island of Patmos. What is that to you? You follow me, Jesus said. And Jesus says that to each one of us. He has individual relationships with each one of us, and he loves us individually, and he has a purpose for each of us individually, a love that's unique, and he wants us to follow him individually and together. Proverbs 19.11, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by overlooking wrongs. Here's another version. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So even if it is intended, it's to one's glory to overlook an offense. Colossians 3.13, these are scriptures. This one says, uh, make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. God, in his love, sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins. He loved us so much, he overlooked a whole bunch of bad. Forgave us. And so we must forgive others also. Lord, let that flow through us. How does John the Baptist respond? So his disciples come to him, they tell him this, and man. John knocks it out of the park. Look at this, the next passage here. John 3, 27 through 30. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. So cool. John knows who he is, and he knows who Jesus is, and he knows that he's there to point people to Jesus. And he says, a man can receive nothing unless it is given to him from heaven. God has given me a role to play. He's given me a circle of influence. He's given me certain skills and certain skills I don't have. <clears throat> I have certain positions. I have certain influence. And there are certain positions and influence I don't have. But I receive what I have from the Lord. And I want to be faithful with that. And Jesus is the Messiah. And he receives from God what he's received which is a whole lot different and a whole lot bigger than what I am. He must increase, I must decrease. Uh, what about our willingness or about us positioning ourselves or growing? Oh, absolutely. And we should seek um, to be available to the Lord uh, for all that God has called us to do. And a lot of times there's a lot that God may have us or would want for us, uh, opportunities and blessings and favor and, and powerful uh, interactions that um, that we don't recognize because we're not available and we're not hearing and we're not being obedient and so forth. Ultimately, God is the giver uh, of things. Uh, Proverbs 16, nine, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Proverbs 24, 20, 24, the Lord directs our steps. So why try to understand everything along the way? We don't have to understand everything. We can understand some things, not Everything. Did, Joe, did John know he was about ready to get thrown into prison? I don't think so. And that's a sermon coming up soon. Proverbs 19, 21, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. Question for you, question for me today, will I be whatever God wishes me to be? Will I do whatever God wishes me to do, regardless of earthly titles, acknowledgement, earthly rewards? I had a gentleman tell me once, he said, life will look different than you anticipate. We can adapt and humble ourselves or become hard and bitter. He said, hold loosely to your ambitions and your possessions and your earthly titles. He said, keep an open hand like this. God puts something in your path, gives you an opportunity, finances, whatever it is, can enjoy it, can admire, you can be a steward but don't cling to it. Keep an open hand. Do not set your heart upon the material and the temporal, but rather the spiritual and the eternal. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Paul says, I know how to be content with whatever I have, whether I have much or little. John the Baptist says, I rejoice to hear about Jesus' ministry growing. It fills me with joy. He rejoices. He's so excited. Why? Because John and Jesus are on the same team. Same team. Man, when a team, a college team, is in the national championship game and there's a three pointer at the buzzer that goes in, you don't see other people on the team going, Doggone it. I wanted to shoot that shot. Everybody is jumping up and down, piling in a big pile. Everyone is so excited, so pumped up. And spiritual maturity is tied to our ability to respond with the same joy in another's success that you would in your own. We see someone else in the body of Christ, the church, God does something awesome through them, and we're, we are winning. We are winning. (laughs) We're pumped. We're pumped up. There's not envy and jealousy. There's not offense. We root for each other. We're on the same team. We rejoice as Christians. The Bible says we should rejoice with those who rejoice and we should weep with those who weep because we're all part of the same family. John is a friend of the groom, and so he cheers the moment. He's not confused about the role he is to play. He's not intimidated by the role that Jesus is to play. In fact, John realizes something even deeper here: that while his location and his position, and the people, and even his role might look different throughout his life, his mission never changes. John's mission, no matter what he, who he was with, or where he was at, was always to prepare the way for the Lord Jesus. Number three in our notes: our mission never changes. Might wear different hats throughout life. Might be different seasons of life. I think of David in the Bible. You know, he was a shepherd for a while. Protecting sheep for a while. And then he was a soldier for a while. He beat Goliath. Then he's a a captain of soldiers. He's leading soldiers for a while. Then he's a fugitive for a while. For one season of his life, he's just a fugitive, fleeing his own country, trying to stay alive. And then he's king of Judah. And then he's king of all of Israel, Before that, he was, actually, I missed one. Way back there when he was with the sheep, he was a songwriter. This songwriter, and a harpist, he played for the King Saul, played harp music. He did different things throughout his life, but always it's to honor the Lord. It's always to live for Jesus, live for God. Be faithful in wherever we're planted. The mission never changes. Bring glory to God. Hear God, know God. To know God, And to make him known, that's a navigator's um, Christian organization. That was their mission statement, to know him and to make him known. Yeah, so good. To know him, to enjoy him, and make him known. We continue John 3, 31 through 36. Oh, you know what, we're running out of time, aren't we? So um, so we will end right there. And this is, uh, this is the best point to come. We'll get to it next time. It's Jesus gives eternal life. Jesus is the Son of God. And we're going to dive right into that fact the next time we hit the book of John. So you guys pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this morning. You are so awesome, Lord. And your kingdom is way better than any kingdom on earth. All your ways are right and upright and just and pure and holy, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. And Lord, when we look at your kingdom and we're taught by your word and by your Holy Spirit, Lord, it starts to change us, Lord. It it gives us new perspective. It gives us new power, new desires, new ability. We thank you, Lord, for being with us this morning. Thank you for your love, Lord. I pray for the things that we've just talked about that you've shared with us, Lord, about unity in the body of Christ, Lord. Oh, help us, Lord. We are such fallen creatures, Lord, but with your help, Lord, with your love, Lord, we can be transformed. We are grateful, Lord. Pray for this week, Lord. We could be reliant upon you. You would encourage us, Lord, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.